0: I'm not too good for those stools, (laughs) but cushion is nice, especially after being in a car most of the day yesterday, and uh, my wife and I and the kids, we, in 16 years of marriage, at the end of this month, this past week was the uh, second time ever we've taken a vacation with just our family, and so I think I spent more time cumulatively in the ocean uh, this past week than I've probably spent in the ocean in the past three years, so it was good. And we, we still all have, have all our fingers and our toes and our sanity, um, but it, it was a good trip. So uh, today we are we're back, like like Abby said in our influencer series. Thank you, Abby and Becky, um, for doing that, and uh, just really really good to hear. Like Abby said, like every third Sunday we try to have some part of, of our stories. Kind of on display, because we talk about how important it is that we're able to verbalize those and talk about that and how Jesus has influenced our life and uh, it 's good to be able to actually use those in conversation with people today, like we didn 't prompt Becky to talk about what she talked about or the last song that we we actually sang, but today we 're going to talk about the influence of idols in our life, and so uh, we're going to look at, like, man, one of the just premier Old Testament stories about what this looks like. And it's an extreme scenario, an extreme illustration of what this looks like. And we're going to ask some questions there. We're going to look at, you know, some of the obvious things there and maybe talk about some of the less obvious things, too. But I want to pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll turn to Daniel chapter 3 and jump in on that. God, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. And, God, thank you for the fact that he desires to not just uh, change our story but to be our story. Um, God, thank you that, uh, that he looks at us as people who need redemption, um, and God calls us to himself. Thank you, God, for granting us uh, access to you through him. God, today as we look at your word, I pray that uh, we could look at it just with, with fresh eyes and, and an open heart and just kind of answer good questions and uh, look at it in the, from the seat of we are people that have been called to worship you and to worship you alone, um, and just try, help us try to figure out and understand through your spirit what that looks like. Thank you for loving us, thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray, amen. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 3, and we're going to spend a little bit of time there, actually 30 verses there this morning, we won't be bouncing around a whole lot this morning. Uh, This is probably, like if you grew up in the church, uh, BOBC, whatever kind of church it was, BOBC is our short for Big Old Baptist Church, and that's fine, we're not making fun of it, I did, and so I understood what it was to go to Sunday school and have the flannel lithograph, which was that felt board that things would stick to. And even when I was in Bible college, like I went through a class as to how to use one of those. I haven't used one on a Sunday yet, but boy, it's going to happen at some point, uh, and I can't wait. But this is one of those stories that we would have seen, like on a flannel lithograph growing up. And so, great story. Uh, we're setting it up in chapter 3 of Daniel uh, about these three guys who were renamed when they were brought into, uh, into this place. They were, originally had different names, but now we're going to know them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, let's go ahead and start in chapter three, and we'll read through a couple verses, and we'll we'll start to see uh, what's going on here. Chapter three, verse one: King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was sixty cubits and whose breadth was six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all officials of the province to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justice, the magistrates, and all officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that that Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Just a few years previous to this, the king of Babylon went to Judah, a tribe of Israel, and they took some captives. They took some people. They took some of the best from Israel because they wanted to make them servants of the king. We have four people that we know of, and their names here are going to be David, I mean, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And so, in this particular place, what has happened? uh, The king, he's decided to build a huge golden statue. We don't really know what that statue was about. We most of the time assume that it was an image of himself. We don't really know that for sure. But what we do know is that it was big, it was skinny, and the point of it was this, that anytime you heard any music at all, whatever radio station was playing, whatever, wherever it was coming from, you were to hit your face and you were to worship. Like in this particular place, this is like one of these perfect concrete examples of what idol worship looks like. Now, I'll go ahead and kind of tell you, we're going to be talking about what idolatry looks like for us, and, and I'll go ahead and say that most of the time, it's probably not going to look like this. Today, the language in chapter 3 in Daniel is probably going to represent some extremes for us, and so what we need to do is kind of look at the extremes, but, but try to train our brains and our hearts to think about the subtleties that are going to be represented here. And so what was commanded of them in verse 4, it just says, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, every or any kind of music, fall down, worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And so that's, that's where we are. And so, like, in, in our modern culture, like, if we try to think of anything that's, like, on equal footing to this or kind of matches this, we're probably going to struggle to find what those things look like. But I'll go ahead and pitch this out to us. Uh, like I said, for us, it's not going to be as clear. Um, this idea of idolatry is going to be much more subtle. Today, we probably need to define a couple things before we go any further. The first is we probably need to define what worship is. And, and so if you go to Webster and look at worship, worship's just going to be the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. Very, very clean, very clear. But if we read through Scripture, we see worship takes on a lot more meaning, a lot more application. It's going to look a little more different. It's not just a feeling or an expression. It's not just reverence. But it's more just the idea that, that if we ascribe worth and value to God, we're going to serve. Um, we are going to devote ourselves. We're going to trust. We're going to obey. We're going to pursue. And through Jesus, as a result of the new covenant, now we actually get to follow. And so for worship, worship is not just, uh, this is good, I like that, but instead, uh, when we look at worship in Scripture the way it's laid out with the one true God, and now through Jesus, is we actually get to follow, pursue, devote our lives to, and actually serve this God. Not just look at Him, not just say that He's beautiful, but we actually get to devote in our entire life, the expanse of it, to actually going after and doing the will of God, and that's worship for us. Idolatry, we need to work on a way to define that. Uh, One way to define it as idolatry is when anything, even a good thing, becomes an ultimate thing. When anything, even a good thing, becomes an ultimate thing. Tim Keller wrote a book, Counterfeit Gods, and, and his way of describing what an idol is, he says an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, and anything that you seek to give Uh, that you seek to give you what only God can give. Uh, John Calvin, the theologian, he made this, this interesting statement to say that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. We're constantly in the process of creating, making things for us to worship. And that's the reason it's so subtle, it's so different. It's not just this golden statue that's built, and when we hear music, we fall down on our face. But but instead in this heart of ours that is bent towards sin, like we're constantly creating things for us to worship. Things of our own invention, man-made. Maybe we don't sit down by a a candle with a piece of wood and whittle something out and put it on the mantle that we're going to pray to, but in our hearts, we're constantly making things that we're going to go after, things that we're going to pursue, things that are going to seek to replace God. And so, King Nebuchadnezzar had done the extreme of that, built this large, golden, this edifice thing kind of a deal. And he said, when you hear music, you're to fall down, you're to worship. And there was a consequence. He said, for anyone who doesn't, you're going to be thrown into the fiery furnace. Okay, pretty real. Again, for us, like the extremes, you know, whatever we make, whatever we create, most likely the the result is not going to be we're going to be burned alive. Like, let's just be honest. That's probably not for us. But we'll point out an interesting statistic for the rest of the world in, in just a few. So after this was put out, verse 8, it says, "'Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward maliciously and accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon.'" I really don't know what a trigon is. "'Harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the burning, fiery furnace.'" There are certain Jews who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so now we have this situation. We have these these young men who were pulled from a a God-worshipping nation, a God-worshipping people, a people set apart for God's worship by design. They've been pulled out of that place. They've been placed here and these people, these Chaldeans, which was a group of people that were generally magicians um, and worshipers of another way, they said, you've got these guys living amongst you that are actually representatives of you, and when the music plays, they do nothing. You just need to know, O king, and you're a good king. You just need to know they're doing nothing. So you said they need to be burned, so I'm just, I'm just putting it out there. So now we have drama. What's going to happen? If you remember the flannel lithographs, you, you probably have a good idea. Verse 13 Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden statue that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace." And who is the God who will deliver you out of the hands, my hands? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, I love this. Read this a couple weeks ago, kind of in preparation, and man, it just, it hit me. And I've read it hundreds of times before, literally, probably a hundred times. Man, I just, I love this statement. And they said to the king, "Oh Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. No need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were cut from a cloth that was very different from this Nebuchadnezzar, this king of Babylon. They were cut from a cloth in which they understood that God had set some things out for them, before they were even born, before their grandfathers were born, up on a mountain, God had listed out these things, these ways, these ideas, ways in which we should live our life. And it begins very simply with this idea that I am your God, you shall have no other gods before me, whether made by man or made any other way, you shall bow down to no other God. And this was foundational to what they understood. It was foundational to the way that they breathed. It was foundational to the way that they walked. It was foundational to the way that they thought. It was foundational to who they are that they understood that no other God, no other God, big G, little g, didn't matter. No other God deserved their worship, but only the one true God. And so when Nebuchadnezzar came to them and he said, Look, you know the deal. You know, you work for me, you serve me, you heard the decree, you heard the command. The command was this, when you hear music, you bow down, you worship that statue no matter where you are. And their response was, oh no, king. (laughs) Oh no, we have no need to discuss this any further. No need to discuss this any further. We'll come back. Verse 18, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury. He was mad. And the expression of his face... Had changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he ordered that the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were burned in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thr- they were bound. Pardon me. They were bound uh, in their cloaks and in their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning fiery furnace. So this would have been like this giant clay cooking pot kind of a deal, but on a much larger scale. Think of a tandoori oven in an Indian restaurant kind of a deal. And you've got a hole in the top, and then you have a place at the bottom where they could go in and pull the ashes out. And so they would go up on the hill, and they would just push people into the fire. If you didn't bow down, you you got pushed into the fire. Nebuchadnezzar was so mad, he's like, I want it a lot hotter. I don't want it just to burn them. I want it to burn them bad. You know, I want them to just poof as soon as they go in. And so that's what he wanted. And it was so hot, the people that got close enough just to push them in, they were burned alive. And it says the three men, they fell into the fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. And he declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? You can't make this stuff up. This is good. They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God. Man, his tones changed. Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own. Therefore, I make a decree, a new decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the provision of Babylon. And so what we have here is a, a very different picture of what, man, idolatry looks like. It was decreed. And so, like, this is not a political statement. This is not about anything like that. But in this situation, it was this king who said, when this music plays, you bow down, you worship. If you do not, you get burned alive until you're dead. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego responded. They said, we can't do that. They threw them in the fire. And to the king's surprise, he looked in and he saw not three but four walking around. And also, they were no longer tied And they came out, and unlike me, after I grilled, they didn't smell of smoke. Their eyebrows were still intact. All of those things, there was no proof. Colin, you know what I'm talking about. Sometimes you get a little careless with the lighter fluid and your eyebrows. They they disappear. None of that happened. They came out, and they were perfect. And the king looked, and he said, something's different. Like, this was the perfect scenario. Like, just throw it out there. Like, this could not have gone any better for anybody involved. It could not have. Like, we think about it, like, uh, number one, they were tossed in the fire, and what happened immediately? Like, their bonds were gone. They were no longer tied up. Like, they could have been burned alive. It could have burned everything, but no, it just burned the ropes that were tying them together. And then, it's very likely that they actually walked with the pre-incarnate form of Jesus, like, Scripture leads us to believe here, like, even, even Nebuchadnezzar's words in the first place, he's like, man, this fourth person walking around in there, he looks like a son of the gods. Like, he looks way different. So, either pre-incarnate form of Jesus or an angel, either way, like, redemption came down from God to walk around with these men in the fire. That's good. Bond's gone, good. Walking with Jesus or either an angel sent by God, good. Third thing is they actually walked out of the fire. They weren't burned alive. That's, that's pretty good. I mean, you're dropped in a fire so hot that the people that got close to it, they were burned alive. But these guys, they just kind of took a stroll, and they walked out. That was good. And then afterwards, afterwards, it, they weren't sent to prison. They weren't sent to jail. No, they were promoted. This last passage, it says, then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. He's like, hey, you've done good. You get a raise. And then top it off, King Nebuchadnezzar saw that there's no other God capable of doing what just happened. Now, I'll tell you that Nebuchadnezzar's life wasn't perfect after this, but I do believe that his eternity was changed as a result of three men that said, no, 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 king, we will not bow down. So it went splendid. Could not go any better. But here's the elephant in the room that needs to be addressed. Like, as beautiful as this is, as amazing as this is, and as, as completely under the purvey of God as this is, like, we also have to acknowledge it could go a different way. It could go a different way. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity in 2017 released a study that looked back over the previous decade. 900,000 Christ followers killed as a result of them following Jesus. 900,000 in 10 years. 90,000 a year on average. One death every six minutes on average in that decade. And very likely since 2017, that number's probably risen 900,000. Now, see, in our country, we walk around, and to be honest, we we don't see this. This is not in our scope. This is not in our purvey. We don't don't see the idea that someone dies just for saying, yes, Jesus and I, uh, we're together in this matter, dead. We don't see that. But around the world, it happens on average every six minutes because someone says, no, 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 I'm not going to worship what you tell me to worship. I choose Jesus. Jail, death, fire, it doesn't matter. I choose Jesus. Missionaries around the world watch their families slain for choosing Jesus. I want to reread verse 16 in the second part. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fire furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship. We will not serve your gods or worship. This golden image. See, I think that we have this perception that our worship is tied to the promise of rescue. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego understood something that we need to adopt, that we need to adhere to. Those 900,000 believers that were put to death probably between 07 and 17, they understood the same thing. They understood that our worship is not tied to the promise of rescue. No, our worship is a result of the fact that we have already been rescued. See, the people of Babylon, they thought that they worshipped so that they could gain something instead of understanding that, that through God, now us, through Jesus, we can already gain everything and the rest of our life is a response to that. We don't worship so that we may attain rescue. We worship because we have already been rescued. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were resign to the fact that either way, King, whether I burn alive or whether God rescues me because He's entirely able, it doesn't matter because our rescue is already promised. So do what you will, but we will not bow down. We will worship no image. We will worship no lowercase g God. We will only worship the one true God. We decided that well before you threatened us. They didn't worship, they did not obey so that they could obtain rescue. They worshiped and they obeyed because they had already been rescued. See, our heart, like even in our heart's attempts to, to be religious, to be moral, we've created this image of God that's inaccurate, that's incomplete. We believe that we must do so that He will do. When in fact, we get to do because he's already done. We get to serve, we get to follow, we get to worship, we get to adore, we get to be and live in this idea of salvation because of the works that he's already done. By grace through faith, we get to take part, not so that we can gain rescue. God is able, but if not, doesn't matter, king, doesn't matter. Nope, not today, not never, not ever. (laughs) Pardon me, that was a double negative which changed the entire meaning. doesn't matter for who, we will not. And it all hinges on this idea of why do we worship? Why do we obey? Why do we do all of these things? I think for us it's not, not nearly as clear as a golden statue that someone's telling us to bow down to. This is the complication. Like for us, it, it, it's much more subtle. It's just far more tricky. Because if it was a golden statue, we could obviously look at that and say, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not going to bow down to that. No chance. I mean, that's a golden statue. It doesn't even have a cross on it. So No no way. But for us, like it's, it's so much more tricky. Like John Calvin's statement is so true of this, you know, the state of man, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols, and this idea that an idol is anything, even a good thing, that becomes an ultimate thing. Man, it's, it can be so tricky. It can be so tricky. And so I think, like I was just thinking through, like, what do we do with this? Well, number one, we, we, we can't be idolaters, but that's a simple statement, but how do we even, like, for something so subtle, how do we even approach it? And so for me, just thinking through, I think, like, there, there are three questions for me because I think we need to have a spirit-led introspection on this idea of so what, what is idolatry, am I committing it, am I doing it? And so I think the first question is this, and hear me out. What brings me the most joy? What brings me the most joy? I think it's a very telling statement. Now, again, joy is not walking around with a perfect, perpetual smiling cramp. That's not joy. Joy is not walking around just, you know, being jokered all day long. Like, joy instead is actually understanding that no matter what, I already have rescue. No matter what. Just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're like, hey, king, God is able. He may, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down. Because they understood. They weren't doing this or avoiding this in order to attain rescue. They already had rescue. Joy for us is understanding that no matter what, rescue is already there. Come wind, come loss, come death, come gain. Rescue's already there through Jesus, and that's where joy comes from in us. What brings us the most joy? Is it that, or is it something else? I think the trickiness is this idea that that idolatry is. It's anything, even a good thing. When it becomes an ultimate thing, there are several good things in life that they are. They're just good. Like, family's good. Children are good. Jobs are good. Money's not bad. You know, all these things, they're good. But when these are the things that we're depending on for our joy, they've crossed over from becoming good to something else. And I know that's difficult. Even in the church, like, to be honest, like, even in the church, we've elevated family and parenthood. Uh, to a place that often often supersedes Jesus, man. You, you talk to a person that's single, that's been single, called by God, single for twenty years, and you ask them, do you feel second rate? And they'll say, most likely, I do, because the church has made it seem like like if I'm not married, I'm not quite good enough. That's because we've elevated some things beyond where they need to be. Good family's good, marriage good, kids good, not Jesus. Good things becoming ultimate things. What, what is it? Like money. Money's a great tool, but a terrible master. We've talked about that. Like money's not bad. In and of itself, if you had a stack of $100 bills right here, they're not bad. But if this is what brings my joy, it's a problem. Where does my joy come from? Where do I find uh, most of my joy? Where is it? Is it any of those things? Is, is it something else? Man, sometimes it can be things that are bad. Maybe we could even say, hey, sometimes idolatry is this, Uh, when anything, even a bad thing, becomes an ultimate thing. Some things that we call bad, maybe you find your most joy there. Same answer. Like for us, I think our joy needs to be situated in this spot that says, no matter what, no matter what, I've already been granted rescue. And that should change the entire trajectory of my life. I get to live in response to that. It should push me to worship, it should push me to serve, it should push me to pursue, it should push me to share, it should push me to do all those things over and over and over and over again until I can't. Where do I find my most joy? Here's a second question, and you might just, just sit there for a second on this one. I'm going to ask this question, and then I'm going to give seven seconds exactly to think about it. What causes me the most worry? Seven, what causes me the most worry? Incredibly telling. For me, like, if I sat down and I thought about the things that kept me awake at night, if it's something that I'm dwelling on and I'm worrying about constantly, uh, man, it points directly to the fact that these things, I think they have far more power than God does whatever they may be, whatever the things are that are causing me the most worry, man, I, I'm more scared of them than I am trusting in God. And that's a problem. That's a problem. What causes me the most worry? Because that's, that's a devotion in and of itself. Like worry, man, worry may be, may be the most tricky idol that we have. Because worry motivates us to do some crazy things. Worry motivates us to try to solve our own problems. Worry motivates ourselves to trust in ourselves only. Worry motivates ourselves to not trust in God. Worry is probably one of the trickiest idols that we have. What causes me the most worry? The third How do I define my worth? That's right. (laughs) He agreed. How do I define my worth? Man, this is the one where those good things become ultimate things. Like maybe you've been told you're not worth anything until you get that promotion. Maybe you've been told you're not worth it until you get married, until you have kids. um, Whatever it may be, fill in the blank. What defines your worth? Where's the place that you feel most valuable? Because, again, if we're entertaining that somewhere other than Jesus, then then we've forgotten that when God looks at me, He doesn't see my 401k or my 401k, as we talk about. He doesn't see my bottom line. When when God looks at me, praise Jesus, He sees Jesus. And my worth is based entirely on His righteousness, entirely on His goodness, entirely on His works. Now, granted, as a result of that, I get to move into the mission that he started, Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship, and we've been created and placed in good works that he created beforehand. yeah, that's great, but when he sees me, he gets to see Jesus, and that's what makes me worthy. Not my best day, not my worst day, just Jesus. Where do I find my most worth? See, the interesting thing is no matter which way it went for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, no matter which way it goes for me, like these, these five things would still be true. Like if we're trusting in Jesus, whether we're burned alive or not, I know this is an extreme example, whether we're trust, if we're trusting in Jesus, whether we're burned alive or we walk out, man, the bonds that held us captive, they don't matter anymore. Like because of Jesus, the bonds that held me captive, which was sin and death, they don't, they don't hold me captive anymore. The bonds that held them, the ropes that were around their wrists, they were burned off. Same thing applies either way. Walking with Jesus, yeah, I get to do that too. Alive or dead, there's some creepy sounding birds out there. They're coming for us all. Whether alive or dead, I get to walk with Jesus. Whether walking in the fire and he's beside me, or or man, maybe the fire killed me, either way. get to walk with Jesus. And eventually I'm gonna to get to walk out of the fire too. One way or another, singed or not, we get a we have a way out. That's a win. Man promoted? Absolutely. <laughs> promoted? Absolutely. I've been taken out of this world and I've been placed into his kingdom. And God looks at me now, God looks at you now. If we are with him by grace faith, he looks at us as his masterpiece, as the chief of his creation. That's promotion. Here's the other one that may be a little bit conditional. Nebuchadnezzar believed because they walked out of the fire. Man, our lives, the same way that you saw Becky sharing and Abby asking her questions, man, our lives every single day, no matter the struggle, no matter the trauma, no matter the fire, no matter the escape, man, our lives every single day should be telling a story that should be pointing people towards Jesus, and then he can draw them to himself. But faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of God, and they get to hear it from us. So one way or another, those five things get to happen to us all if if we understand the same things they did, if we understand that, man, my worship, my obedience is not tied to the promise of rescue. My worship and my obedience are a result of me being rescued already, me living out this, this idea that I have already been purchased, I've already been paid for, and it was a high price, and it was through Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus and Jesus alone. Can I find my joy in Him? Can I release my worry to Him? Do I find my worth in Him? Man, I'll challenge you this week. Maybe, maybe for five days straight, ask those three questions. Before you do, like pray, hey God... I want you to reveal the answers to this to me. Don't let me just figure it out on my own, but God, I want you to deal with me. I want you to speak to me. Speak to me through your words. Speak to me through other people. Speak to me just through your spirit. Just punching me, pricking me, doing whatever you've got to do, but speak to me. God, the first question is, what brings me the most joy? Where do I find my joy, that ultimate joy? Where does it come from? Does it come from you? Does it come from someone else or somewhere else? What causes me the most worry? What are the things that I dwell on? What are the places that I'm not trusting you with? What are those areas that are saying, hey, God, you know what? I'm trusting uh, the, the damage that may come more than I'm trusting you to fix it. What are those things that cause me the most worry? And then that last one, maybe the last one is just, maybe that's the most important. Where do I find my worth? Where do I find my worth? I think for me, like, these questions are just some of these that get asked a lot just introspectively, because I want to know, like, God, am am I putting anything before you? And some days the answer, I'll be honest, some days the answer is yes. Like, I'll be real with you. Like, I I can't answer these perfectly every day. But here's the response, and we'll apply it to any sin. The response is confess, repent, move back to worship. Confess, repent, move back to worship. So for any of these questions, man, if we find our joy somewhere else, if, if there, we're worrying over stuff more than we're trusting Jesus, if we're finding our worth somewhere else, the answer is just this. Hey, God, I'm sorry for this. I'm finding my joy elsewhere. I want to find it in you. Will you guide me? Forgive me? Help me worship you. That's it. And then just do it. Let me pray. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for amazing stories and scriptures, even the ones that are full of extremes. Thank you for the example that they set for us, the place that they, they can push us to. God, I pray that we would be people, a people, a church uh, that would be singular in our worship. Uh, the world can be so tempting and the other things that can, can vie for our worship can be so attractive. But God, I pray that through your spirit, through your word, through your community, through your mission, God, I pray that you would remind us frequently the same thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said to King Nebuchadnezzar. No matter what, I will not worship anything else. Just you. God, and I pray that we could just be honest and ask ourselves these questions. Ask them with you involved and expect an answer from you. Uh, God, point out to us if, if we are entertaining idols. Maybe ones that we never thought of, but God, are we doing that? And forgive us when we ask, and God, point us back into a place of worship. Thank you, God, for rescue. Thank you that we didn't have to do it on our own. Thank you, God, that we didn't have to orchestrate it uh, you knew that we needed it, so you sent Jesus. Thank you that he's trustworthy. And thank you that he's able. God, we love you. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.